2: GoLazzo is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. The Bet365 app lets you access pre-match and in-play markets and provides instant match updates across the biggest sports.
1: Today on Galazzo, another journey back in time to when Inter went Teutonic and Supersonic with the Trey Tedeschi, Klinzi, Vrema and Mateus, the most successful hair transplant Milan has ever seen. whoo Hello, calchistically minded listener. It's me, James richson I'm joined as ever, by James Horncastle. Ciao.
2: Ciao, ciao, Jimbo.
1: And also, very special guest today, Raphael Honigstein. Hi,
3: Rafa. Ciao, bello. Ciao, ciao.
1: <laughs> to me. <laughs> Rafa, I don't know if you've been you know, following particularly our Golazzo series, but this is a little time we take uh, to talk amongst ourselves about the good old days when when Italian football was really, really special, and so were
3: German footballers. Mm, they were indeed, James. The golden days of the late 80s, early 90s.
1: Well, right. So these three Germans that we're going to talk about today, pretty diverse trio. Uh, that's diverse, not divers, although <laughs> one of them, one of the cases. <laughs> but still, <laughs> uh, three Germans who arrived... Shaking his head. <laughs> three Germans who, who made Inter winners against some of the most remarkable odds ever seen in football, I would say. Arriving in a league which featured the three Dutchmen at Milan, Maradona at Napoli, so many stars, and turning Inter into not just winners, but a record-breaking side. Rafa, were you following Inter once Mateus and and Andy Bremer had gone across to, to Milan? Were you following, were people in Germany following Inter Milan?
3: I was, and yes, they were. Inter became my Italian team for for a short while because I was a huge fan of Lauter in particular. Um, uh, really, the player I think that everyone looked up to uh, at the time in Germany because of his all action, um, you know, persona. He was kind of a, a German Roy Keane, um, the way he played. He was just sensational, and yeah, Inter with the sexy shirts and. These wonderful um, fans in the stadium felt very exotic and it became, I'm sure, a a well-supported team across Germany as a result.
1: Mm. A great kit, wasn't it? Classic blue and black stripes with the Missouri uh, sponsor. To what extent was the arrival in 88 of Matthäus and Bremer with Klinsmann to, to follow a season later, to what extent was that Inter's response to the extraordinary Dutchman across town, James.
2: Well, I don't think they decided to go with Germans just because they had a track record of beating the Dutch at World Cup finals. Um, yeah, they'd already gone German um, before, earlier in the decade, um, signing Hansi Muller uh, mm. and also uh, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge.
1: Hansi Muller, it didn't work out too well, though. No. no sooner had he arrived than he released... I don't know if you ever heard the record that he that he made, Kaltcho Dirigori...
0: Di rigore.
2: Ma che bel Parte una stangata, a german making a, a a song about penalty kick i mean that's that's well yeah
1: actually but um for that and other reasons he was slapped in the face by Spillo Altobelli, and I don't think he ever really connected with the rest of the team uh, Pellegrini who we'll come on to very very shortly uh, moved him on soon after but as you mentioned Kali uh, Rummenigge coming in uh, slightly later on and uh, not having perhaps the impact but you, you tell the, the story of uh, their, their, their predilection for Germans
2: well, so Inter had won the league title in, in nineteen eighty, uh, and why this is important is because it was, I think, the last time that uh, an all Italian team had had, had uh, lifted the uh, the scudetto. If you can lift a scudetto, it's actually something you stitch uh, on your shirt. And there was this there was this sense that, despite their name, Internazionale, a club that had been founded to to basically uh, you know accept. Um, players of foreign descent to come and play for them. Um, there was this feeling within the club that when they did sign foreign players, it tended to go wrong. And we've mentioned Hansi Muller. Um, you alluded to uh, Spillo Altebelli's slap, um, which you know he, he didn't take too kindly to Hansi not passing him the ball. Um, Everisto Beccalossi, who was the kind of number 10 of, uh, of Inter at the time, uh, didn't like basically the fact that the club signed him because... Muller played in his position and uh kind of called him the chair. Um, oh no, He said he would rather play with a chair uh, than, than Hansi Muller because at least if you hit the ball at a chair you might get it back uh, instead of in, in, which is slightly bizarre. Uh, and then they signed Kali Rummenigge and uh, Rummenigge I think was uh, 30 or, or thereabouts um, had won the Ballon d'Or in, in 1980 1981. 1981 um, and uh, you know, had been a part of that West Germany side. They had got to the World Cup final in '82. Um, his new teammate, Beppe Begamy, had marked him in that game. And there were great expectations that Rummenigge uh, would be the guy who would uh, come in and, and score as many goals as he had in Germany. I think he'd been top scorer three times um, in the Bundesliga. And he did okay, but injuries really kind of uh, let him down. I mean, he scored some spectacular goals, James. I mean... We should recommend Golazzo listeners to go and check out just some of the bicycle kicks Rummenigge was responsible for in his uh, in his days with the There's one against Torino. And there's one Zlatanesque taekwondo kind of uh, uh, goal which was disallowed, uh, a great injustice against Rangers where he kind of lets it go over his shoulder and then does something that I've only seen in one of those kind of crouching tiger hidden dragon films and it was... It was disallowed for uh, dangerous play and high boot. Uh, crazy, crazy. Mm. Rangers have got at the
1: refs again, as was so often the case in their clashes with Italian <laughs> sides. <laughs> anyway, uh, he, did, he didn't actually win anything at Inter, although he did provide one or two golden memories. But the, the three Germans who arrived at the end of the 80s were to produce a paradigm shift in that club's fortunes. To tell their story, let's head back... Uh, to a little bit earlier on in that decade a simpler time
3: we're living like in a Dolce Vita mm,
0: going dream tonight we're dancing like in a Dolce
1: Vita nobody else Rafa, do you remember Deutsche Vita? We're living like in the Dolce, Dolce Vita. Vita.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Elf El Freunde magazine did a magazine um, edition on uh, Germans in the 80s in, in Serie A uh, because ah, it was yeah. a bit of a time. And uh, it was called Deutsche Vita. <laughs> that
2: was very nice. Brilliant. And nice. it had Hans Peter
3: Briegel on the cover yeah. in a little boat, I think, that he must have had right. uh, when he was playing at Hellas.
1: Right. Tommasino Hessler, was he in there?
3: Yeah, he had it all in there, yeah.
1: Well, as I say, it was a simpler time, the 1980s. A time initially of economic boom, of huge optimism, of the, the revival of the, the Italian game and of Italian songwriting. Ryan there, the uh, fine example of that. Black Boxer just around the corner as well. But anyway, among those enjoying the boon times was one Ernesto Pellegrini, businessman and handwriting enthusiast who built a hospitality empire from scratch, whose catering company used to do the honours at Villa Perosa, the Agnelli's summer residence. In 1984, Pellegrini bought Inter, leading to the immortal quote from Gianni Agnelli to Boniberti, Have you seen, Giampiero? our cook has bought Inter? Pellegrini didn't enjoy the joke. And was determined to make them a force again. The first step was bringing in Trappatoni in '86.
2: Yeah, trap uh, and was seen quite ironically uh, by by Interisti and, and including so, some of the players like uh, Walter Zenga, for example, who was uh, like an Inter ultra, um, just wearing gloves. You know, just in the way that uh, Buffon often has 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 come across as being a bit of an ultra. Zenga certainly was in those days, um, and. Uh, he said, "Look, you know, uh, of course, uh, to get into to win again, it took someone who uh, had made his name at Milan uh, as a player and made his name as a coach uh, with the gobby, the Hunchbacks uh, over in uh, over at Juventus. And yeah, Trap had won everything. I mean, we've done a couple of shows on on uh, on Trap's coaching career, but uh, there was nothing he hadn't done. You know, he'd won the Cup Winners' Cup, UEFA Cup, the the European Cup, albeit with the, in the tragic back, backdrop of Heysel." Probably the the strongest Juventus side that's that's ever been, with um, Platini, Boniek, and much of the the players who won the World Cup with Italy in 1982. And uh, I suppose is one of his uh, pupils uh, back when he had another spell at Juventus, Antonio Conte. Uh, has kind of followed in the footsteps of Trapp in 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 going from Juventus to Inter, and uh, yeah, I think one of the the fascinating things about about traps, uh, time uh, at San Siro on the blue and black uh, sponda, as they say, on the blue and black bank of the uh, Naviglio River, is that he didn't win instantly. It took him. It took him some time, um, and uh, that's because Inter is a club like no other. In that uh, he said it's like a uh, centrifuga. You know, it's like a centrifuge, which just. It's like a whirlpool, which just sucks so much stuff. Into uh, distractions, all these kind of news stories, which make it a really difficult team and club to manage. um, That, unless you're a manager that has a really strong personality who's able to get the team that you want, um, it's very difficult to do. And that's why I think people, when they look back at Inter's history, you you almost need to be a a manager all Inglese, you know, sort of uh, kind of of English style coach um, who takes control of absolutely everything. Um, You can't Mm. leave nothing to chance, and that was the case with Herrera, Mourinho and Trapp.
1: Trapp arrives in '86, As you say, success is not immediate, but in 1988, the club, perhaps slightly in response to the wave of sets of foreign players that had swept through Serie A, decide to head off to Bavaria and pick themselves up a couple of really choice foreign stars. In they go to Bayern Munich and away they come with arguably, Rafa, the heart of that side, the title winning side from the Bundesliga. How were they able to do that?
3: Well, they were able to do that because at the time uh, Bayern Munich, even as the wealthiest club in in Germany, could not compete with Inter's wages, uh, let alone the transfer fees that they paid. In fact, the Rummenigge deal, I think, which cost 8.3 million marks at the time a few years earlier, had effectively saved Bayern from bankruptcy. Um, so it was a very very important deal for Bayern that really helped them grow and and gave them the funds that built that team that won three titles in a row and that Matteo's led. So it was almost inevitable, I think, at the time that when you are approaching superstar status, you were going to Italy. It was the expected thing almost in Germany that you know these players they're they're too good to to stick around and even Bayern couldn't keep them.
1: Pellegrini, I think, had made attempts to bring. Mateus in a couple of years before. Mateus himself has also said that uh, Maradona sent three or four people to his home in Munich with a suitcase full of money, a million marks. This is according to Lothar. He says in 1987, uh, Diego sent three or four people to my house in, in Munich with a briefcase full of cash, a million marks, and asked me to sign for Napoli. Interesting, uh, interesting negotiating tactics in those Very days. interesting. It didn't work it out. It didn't
3: work out. I wonder what happened to that suitcase.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For real. For real. But in nineteen eighty-eight he did make the move across. Now for anyone who isn't familiar with Lothar Mateus's career or whose view on it has perhaps been a little obscured by what happened after he retired, his attempts to become a manager, etc. Let's just remind ourselves how great a player he was. One of the greatest midfielders of all time, no?
3: Without a doubt, James. I remember going to games in the Olympic Stadium where Mateos played three or four positions at the same time. You know, he was was a deep midfielder. He was an eight. He was a ten. And I remember one particular game where he was basically in the opposition box all the time. I mean, unbelievable quality, force of personality, uh, scored goals with his left foot on his right, even with headers, even though he wasn't the tallest of guys. And yeah, by, by far the most influential midfielders of the, of the 80s in, in Germany and um, a huge, huge loss for Bayern and, and for German football. And I mean, domestic football, but almost inevitable, as we said earlier, that he was going go to go to Serie A because he had reached superstar status. And the only place he could go from there was to go to Italy. Mm.
1: And he had possibly his greatest seasons ever uh, while at at San Siro. Coming with him, meantime, was the left back Andres Bremer, who people didn't know so much about. Gianni Mura, for example, uh, writing in La Repubblica at the time, uh, saying, "Se Mateus era la bisteca, Bremer era l'osso que andava preso a la chicha. If Mateus was the steak, Bremer was the was the bone that came with a bit of fat attached, which. Um, yeah, it's an interesting way of defining a player who himself was voted Serie A's Footballer of the Year. Tell us about Andy Bremer, Rafa.
3: Well, I think that um, that quote uh, was something that probably, um, what's his name, Mura. Yeah, Jenny Mura. Jenny Mura came to regret because Bremer was, was an unbelievable um, left-back or wing-back sometimes, you know, Germany playing often in a, in a system with sweepers, so he was more than a defender, he was often... A wide midfielder effectively and very famous for the distribution on his left foot. I, I, I read um, just a few moments ago before we started recording that he had 33 long passes in the final against Argentina and every single one of them connected. So tremendously uh, reliable his distribution fantastic great engine as well and perhaps most famously of course he was um, almost completely ambidextrous took free kicks with the right, took penalties with the right um, or the left. He himself didn't apparently know which foot was the stronger one. So if you had a wide player who was able to cut in uh, on a foot that was just as good as as the one he was playing on uh, sidewise, uh, made him a very, very special player. And I think um, his his real quality was soon recognised in Inter and, and elsewhere.
1: Mm. Serie A player of the year for that season, that first season there. Uh, with the Nerazuri 88-89, where he formed uh, Defesa di de Ferro, an absolutely unbeatable uh, defensive line. With Walter Zenger in goal, you had uh, Ricardo Ferri there. And, well, he uh, said Fenty it was like Bergman. an
2: ironclad line. I mean, when you've got Ferri in there, there you go. Nice. <laughs> nice,
1: yeah. Well, with Bremer arriving with the Mateus installed at the heart of everything and with other acquisitions along the lines of Ramon Diaz, and also, uh, Nicola Berti. We're all set for what would turn out to be the season of records.
2: You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network.
1: It's 1988. Busy time in Italy. Inter fan Vasco Rossi, here with his ode to the dangerous life, una vita spericolata, had just been done for huge amounts of cocaine. Uh, in football terms, the Dutch had just won the Euros. Milan had won the Italian title. Inter hadn't won anything in eight years. But now Mateus and Bremer had arrived with a really, really strong lineup uh, around them mentioned some of the players coming in. And the way that they began that season, James, was absolutely extraordinary.
2: Yeah, I mean, right from the get-go. Um, yeah, they, they don't lose a game until, I think, February, um, at least in the league. Yeah, and, yeah, this was pretty much unheard of um, in Italy. I mean, we've, we've had teams that uh, go on un, undefeated seasons um, before. I mean, before this, it was Perugia under, I think, the former Inter coach, Hilario Castagna, um, who was the guy who, who um, I think, Trapp took over from at Inter. Um, and uh, that team drew a lot of games. Um, this team won a lot of games. I mean, in terms of, in, in terms of points, I think they only dropped uh, maybe 11 points all season, which is just ridiculous. I mean, part, part of the reason why it's 11 points is because it's still the two points for a win era in an 18-team league um and i do think this achievement of um of setting this 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 record points total is not as talked about as much as it should be at least outside of italy you know we, when you know, when we tend to think of these these great feats um it's usually milan's invincibles uh under under fabio capello um and you know maybe because we've moved to a a 20 team league with three points for a win this kind of gets lost in the shuffle for a bit, but Inter were, were so dominant in uh, in what was, you know, we've always already mentioned how competitive the league was. But given the standing that Milan team has in the game as being, you know, one of the three teams the last fifty years to push football forward uh, with Rinus Michel's Ajax and more recently Pep's Barcelona, um, to knock them off their perch, James, was quite something.
1: It certainly was. First 16 games of the season, as you say, they did not lose. They only conceded five goals in those 16 matches. They didn't lose until February the 12th in Florence, when they came out the wrong end of a seesaw seven-goal thriller with Fiorentina. 4-3 it ended. Napoli, who were their biggest rivals, had a slight glimmer of hope perhaps after that result, but Inter responded by winning their next eight Serie a games, including a 6-0 thrashing of Bologna. And By the end of May, even though there were four games to go, it was already match point to the Nerazzurri. They needed one more win. They were about to face their rivals, Napoli, with Maradona and Careca at San Siro on the 28th of May, 1989. Milan had just won the European Cup four days before. Careca actually opened up the scoring for uh, the Neapolitan visitors at San Siro on that Sunday afternoon. But it wasn't long before Nicola Berti, who'd not won off Luca Fuzzi uh, to equalise. And then, who else should score the winner but Lothar Mateus and Inter were champions. The margin of victory, 11 points, a record, as you say, for an 18-team, two points for a win season. 58 points, their total also a record. 26 wins in that time, only two defeats, 67 goals scored, only 19 conceded. Remarkable stuff. One of the few defeats they'd had along the way was when they took on Bayern Munich in the UEFA Cup. Rafa, that must have been sweet for Bayern, having just lost two of their stars.
3: It was. I mean, it was a classic classic tie. Uh, A very young Bayern team, which had the likes of Olaf Thorn playing midfield, were beaten 2-0 in Munich and basically thought they were out. Uh, This was a time when if you didn't win your home game, you were basically considered to be already eliminated. And I remember so well the return leg because it wasn't on German television, uh, it wasn't live, so you had to listen on the radio and then you could see only highlights at 11 o'clock. And it turned into one of the all-time great Bayern Munich performances in European competition um, when they beat into 3-1 in San Siro. They took a 3-0 lead and then held out, even though they conceded one more goal. And Raymond Aumann, who was by then in goal for Jean-Marie Pfaff, who'd moved on, had his best and and most heroic and legendary night uh, for Bayern in goal, because uh, Matthias in particular created a lot of chances. uh, And Aumann was just just superb.
1: Nobody really talks about that game in Italy. They talk a lot about the first leg. Yeah. And Nicola Berti's, Nicola Berti's extraordinary run, where he does a, a sort of a, a George Ware, a Maradona, if you want, runs pretty much the length of the field in the snow of, of Munich, and then finishes. I mean, it's his most famous goal, James, one that has become iconic there.
2: ancora, Berti! Berti!
1: We Ferri a ferry saying afterwards that it became a real issue because having scored that once, <laughs> Bertie tried to do that every time he got <laughs> hold of the ball in midfield. I was
3: I was at the game in Munich.
2: You were, mm. so you saw Bertie's Bertie's goal.
3: Yeah, I, I can't say I remember it that well. I think my my mind has blanked out that defeat, but I would have been in the stadium.
1: All right, then. Well, the European misadventures aside, it was an extraordinary performance in league terms. Why was it, though, so short-lived, James?
2: Well, you've talked to some of the players, the Italian players. I think that the club moved some of the guys on too early. Um, and this is quite interesting because this whole podcast is about the the three Germans. Um, and uh, I know Riccardo Ferdi um, thinks that they, they shouldn't have sold Ramon Diaz. Uh, as quickly as as they did and you know he would have been it would have been better uh, to keep him as part of the side instead of bringing in clinsman and that's not to say that Klinsmann was a bad player or an ineffective player for inter um, they just felt that um, what they had going on in 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 um, 8889 was was so damn good and i suppose then you have then you have the uh, the competitiveness of the league cuz it's not just the teams that we've mentioned in uh you know, in 1990, be uh, the kind of swan song of uh, Maradona's Napoli, um, and then you have this kind of very young uh, Sampdoria side, just mature um, after kind of playing together for uh, for eight years or so and winning more or less everything. else, you know, Coppa Italia, the, um, the you know, reached finals in Europe, Cup Winners Cup. Um, so, I think it was just that it was just a measure of. Uh, how strong the league was in those days. The other thing, I, I suppose, which is really kind of dumbfounding about this this Inter team is just is just how poor they were in Europe. Um, you know, I think this 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 is often uh, the case in a, in a kind of pre Champions League pre group stage tournament, where the potential for shocks was was so much so much more. You know, they go out to Roy Hodgson's Malmo. Um, as As champions in one of the kind of uh, most infamous nights in in Inter's history, um, along with what when they they lost to Helsingborg. I mean, there there are a few in recent history. I think um, was it drawing or losing to Hapoel Ben Shit I can't even pronounce. Can't even remember what that team is called. Um, um, but yeah, it, was, it is surprising that even when they kept the Germans together for another couple of years and added Klinsmann. Um, that uh, the only kind of trophy that they added was was the the UEFA Cup in 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 ninety one. Um, so it's uh, yeah it's I think it's a, it's a measure of just how how good the league was at the time.
1: Eighty nine ninety they finished up third as you say knocked out right at the start of their European Cup campaign by Malmo. That season though was to end with some extraordinary success for the three Germans in Italy although not for Inter.
0: on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, smart speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is Galazzo, the totally Italian football show.
3: Not
1: the James are joining Gianna Nannini and Eduardo Benato, therefore, on Estate Italiana. Very much the theme in Italy of Italia 90, that most cherished of World Cups. It was in Italy.
3: It was actually a terrible World Cup.
1: Well, was it though? Football-wise. West Germany didn't have a, a bad World Cup at all. And although the final against Argentina, with Andy Bremer spraying those... Deep passes and also scoring the World Cup winning goal in it. It wasn't the best of matches with which to conclude the tournament. Uh, West Germany's opening uh, to their campaign was one of the big highlights. No, Rafa, were you at that game as well?
3: I wasn't. No, James, I didn't go to the uh, to the World Cup. Um, I would have been a little bit uh, too young. But I remember um, Bild's headline after that four-one win against Yugoslavia. It said, Danke, Franz, für diese Liebesnacht. Which go translates on. at, thank you, Franz, in relation to Franz Beckenbauer, for this night of love. Well, there you go. Ooh.
1: It, was, it was a pretty special game. 4-1 against not just any side, but Yugoslavia, who probably came in. as I don't know what the odds were in those days. but
3: I would hazard a guess that Jonathan Wilson had them down as the Dark Horses for that tournament. Right,
1: well, there you go. That was until they met Lothar, Mateus and Co. Mateus in particular had an absolute blinder. You talk about him playing four or five different positions. This game, a great example of that, shutting down Stojkovic, but at the same time, managing to score a brace. Klinsman scores as well. And West Germany uh, got off to an extraordinary start to the season. Uh, When you look at that campaign, possibly helped by the fact that three of the stars were already playing their football in, in Italy, were they kind of the key? Were they at the heart of, of that West Germany World Cup winning uh, tournament?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, together with Rudi Füller up front and Jürgen Kohler at the back, that was that was the spine. But it was a it was a team and a dressing room full of of big players. I think that was the secret to this team. They had all won things at club level. They were all big personalities, and Beckenbauer um, having been slightly less patient in in previous tournaments i think had found a slightly more relaxed way of dealing with them and they had a lot of time off for example and they would go you know for a trip to milan or they would go and just have a a time off and they seemed to enjoy being with each other and, and being in italy and yeah they they had a very good team and of course they fulfilled their potential
2: Mateus does the reverse Maradona in that you know Maradona won the World Cup in '86 and that kind of gave Napoli players the belief that it was going to be their year the following year in '87. Whereas uh, see Mateus wins it in, at the league in '89 and then peaks, I would say, in in, in 1990. Um, also because even in the season of uh, in his what would be his third season, so 1990 to '91 um, at Inter. Um, that's probably his best season from a statistical point of view. Scores 23 goals in all competitions, which for someone in Italy playing in his position in midfield is pretty much unheard of.
3: The funny thing was that in Germany at the time, before this uh, tournament in Italy, Mateus was still being seen as somebody who doesn't quite do it at the highest level. He'd had a very poor European Cup final in 1987 against Porto, which Bayern lost. Bayern hadn't won an international trophy. Germany hadn't won an international trophy. So for all the dominance that he was able to, uh, to show uh, regularly at club level, that big trophy was still eluding him. Um, and in Germany, people were still having sort of casting aspersions at him. And it all changed, of course in the course of those few weeks in Italy, in that summer.
2: I mean, James, uh, to go back to your question about, you know, why wasn't this Inter team able to repeat um, in the league, um, you know, towards the end of of Mateus' time uh, at San Siro, um, you know, he was going back and forth between Milan and Switzerland uh, to to see his girlfriend, Lolita Morena, um, and and trap trap apparently could see that it was affecting his performances, and you know would go into the car park at Appiano Gentile, where his training ground is, and kind of check the mileage on his car to see if he'd been sort of uh, he'd been traveling uh, a lot. But Mateus had so many cars, apparently he just kept turning up in different ones or was using using another vehicle to to go to Switzerland. So uh, that's kind of one of the other reasons why that. Uh, incredible inside, maybe didn't hit the the same heights.
1: It was busy hitting other things, <laughs> yes, <laughs> ooh, in a variety ooh, ooh. of motor vehicles. Now, on the subject though, so Mateus had an extraordinary World Cup and consecrated his, his his status in the World Game. Klinsmann, what was it? Three goals in that tournament, and that was a feat he would repeat at later World Cups as well. But Andy Bremer. Given his extraordinary numbers and the way he influences, you mentioned his passing stats in the final. He scores the the winner. He scored three goals, which is not bad for a left back in, in a World Cup, in a particularly low scoring World Cup as well. He scored against Holland in the quarterfinals. He scored, of course, the free kick that deflects off Paul Parker against England in the semi final, and then the the winning penalty against Argentina. Why does he not enjoy? and possibly he does in Germany, but why elsewhere do you think he's he's gone a little bit forgotten among the pantheon of greats?
3: I don't know about forgotten. I mean, people do remember him as an integral part of that World Cup winning squad. But, I mean, fullbacks or, or wingbacks don't quite have the same stature. They don't quite have the same glamour attached to them. I mean, um, if you think of Philipp Lahm, who, if anything, surpassed Bremer, I think in ten years' time, you know, people in Germany will appreciate him, but he will probably not be the first name that people mention when it comes to, you know, great players of the of the century or of the of the decade. So, I think there's something in the position that your your very dependability and the fact that you are playing without flaws, rather than with big moments that stick in the memory, stick in the mind, um, makes makes. Those kind of players just slightly less memorable. It's just uh, a function of their game, I think.
1: Mm. Although you know, scoring the
3: goal which wins the World Cup final—that pretty big is moment. still yeah mm. continues. And there's a whole story around this, but I don't know if you want to talk about this now. Well, go later. ahead. So Mateus was due to take the penalty famously, but he had broken a stud in his shoe and had changed his, his boots and just didn't feel entirely happy with his new, his new boots and then left it to Andreas Bremer, who was so secure and confident. And th- there's two, two parts of the stories. One is that people in Germany, I think, have kind of later on looked at this and think, was this really smart for Matthias? Was this sort of the, the sign of a mature leader to know your own insecurities effectively and make way for somebody that you trust more? Or was this another occasion where he seemed to kind of disappear? From the biggest stage when it really mattered, that was a an accusation levelled at him in the wake of the 1999 final that Bayern had lost against um, Manchester United, where he gets substituted five minutes from the end, and Mamed Scholl said, "Oh, Mateos always goes missing when it really um, comes down to it." So there's there's all of that uh, mixed up in in it, but at the same time, I thought it was um, it, it's quite funny because. As if the pressure wasn't big enough on Andreas Bremer, um, Rudi Völler steps up to him and says, remember, Andy, if you score, we'll, we win the World Cup. <laughs> Which, you know, didn't prove detrimental, but perhaps could have could have gone the other way. Remarkable.
1: Well, at the end of that year, uh, Andy Bremer places third in the Ballon d'Or voting, but it's won by Lothar Matès, who is, who remains the only player ever to win the Ballon d'Or while playing his football for Inter. Anyway, what came next? We'll talk about that
0: after this. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
2: You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of
3: The Athletic podcast network.
1: So, 1990-91, Mateus has his best season ever, statistically guiding... Into to a long-awaited European success in the UEFA Cup over Roma. Klinsmann doesn't have a good time at all. He doesn't actually score a goal until December and wants to quit the team, uh, supposedly, over his uh, differences of opinion with Trappertoni. As it turns out, Inter themselves will make changes at the end of the year. Trappertoni moves on and the players take their leave of Italy as well. Andy Bremer goes to Real Saragossa. Matthias returns to Bayern Munich and perhaps influenced by his four years in Italy becomes a Libero. As for Klinsmann he goes to loads of places Monaco, uh, Tottenham, Bayern again, Sampdoria, Tottenham once more, Uh, Orange County Blue Stars as well under an assumed name in the early noughties.
3: Jay Goppingen.
2: That's the one. And of course James you mentioned you know was signing the, the three Germans or staggering those uh, three Germans uh, a response to uh, to Milan's Dutchman? Well, I don't think it was, but you know what you see post-Trapattoni when they appoint uh, Corrado Orico, um, sort of a guy who I suppose you can compare with Saki insofar that this guy had, had only once coached in a long coaching career in Serie A, and had been sacked like half, halfway through a season with Udinese, but played zone uh, and also like had all these kind of really innovative ideas, like we're going to train in a cage. And then they signed, what Dennis Bergkamp and Wim Yonk under under uh, Bagnoli, um, and neither of them, uh, well particularly Bergkamp, uh, they really struggle. Um, whereas I suppose you know Hulit Van Basten, Erika, they kind of for at least a, a, a one or two more years uh, are still very much uh, on top um, in uh, in Serie A, or very much symbolic of that that uh, Milan team as that kept on winning under Fabio Capello.
1: Mm. Although they got rid of their Dutchman as well, it's curious how that period when all the clubs wanted to have either three players from a certain nation or at least with some kind of Vague genetic similarity, at least you know.
2: Well, I'd never looked at at, at uh, Juventus post-Platini uh, as the uh, as the Juventus of the Sovietici, mm. the, the Soviets of Juventus. You know, with uh, Zavarov and Elenichev, and uh, and or is it Elenikov? Can't remember. I always get them mixed up. But um, yeah, that you you had to you had to have a a, a block of, uh, of players from a one particular country or federation in that mm. case.
1: Yeah, or in the case of Napoli, a kind of a South American flair trio with uh, Carreca and Maradona and and well, sort of sort of Alamal, though he doesn't really fit into that category quite so much. Uh, they did try with other Germans, Rafa, post the departure of Klinsmann, Bremer and Matthias. Uh, Matthias Sammer was there for all of 11 games. This was pre him winning the Ballon d'Or. And also Lucas Podolski, who pitched up much, much later on loan from Arsenal, managed a whopping seventeen matches for Nerazzurri. Any others that I'm missing out on?
2: No, that's it. That's yeah. poldi was the the first one after summer, so yeah. There's there's not been any others.
1: All right. Well, when you've had the best, hard really to make do with with anybody else. Are Inter still popular with you, Rafa, and with German football fans?
3: Well, I personally still have a soft spot for them. I don't know if I can speak for the rest of of Germany, but I think. I would say historically, they would have some support, but perhaps not quite as much as Juve, who I think are probably the number one team outside Italy as far as Italian and non-Italian support is concerned. And when you rank them against, whether it's other trios
1: from other countries or just generally the imports, which started to flood Serie
2: after the late
1: 80s, how would you rank that, that set of acquisitions, James?
2: Oh, I think uh, right up there at the top. I mean, I always find it interesting at the moment, um, the last couple of years, really, Beppe Bergami, um, who is the captain of, of that team, um, you know, has, has always been asked, you know, what what do Inter need? What what are they missing uh, to, to win the title again um, under Conte or even before that under Spalletti? And he always mentions a kind of Mateus-style figure. And he, he's not just talking about the guy... That Mateus was on the pitch um in terms of this box-to-box player, but someone that you could you could look across at in the tunnel and and find reassurance, you know, that that you know, Lothar was it was always going to be okay as long as he was on the pitch. He was confident that they were gonna win, so they should be confident that they were going to win. And having personalities like that. So I do think in Italy, it seems like certainly more than more so than in other countries, they have the cult of the campione. You know, you have to have a champion on your team, and I would say Mateus um, is is very symbolic of of that. At least at uh, at least at Inter, um, as as being. I mean, if if we're talking about the a, a team that is called Internazionale, that you know became what over the last decade, you know, the first team to kind of field an all foreign. Um, Eleven has had plenty of incredible foreign players. I think you know Mateus is, is in terms of Inter's um, pantheon of, of all time greats is definitely in there. No, I mean uh, certainly had had a, had a, uh, a more decisive impact on the team um, than say even the original Uffinomeno Ronaldo, who who didn't win the league, um, who wasn't wasn't able to get them past a Berlusconi's Milan or a Lippi's Juventus. Um, so Modus uh, yeah, Juventus. I think in that, <laughs> yeah, in that respect, um, right uh, right up there, James, right up there.
1: Right. And the success may not have lasted, but it was perhaps the most impressive of all given, as we mentioned before, the league that it came against, the League of Maradona, of Hullit, and so many other stars. All righty. Wow. Many thanks, Rafa, for joining us then for this special look back at the Tre Tedeschi Grazie a voi <laughs> <laughs> Prego, prego Rafa and many thanks as well to James Horncastle We'll return with another so soon. If you've got anything you'd like us to talk about, why not get in touch For now though, as we sign off with Interista Doc Pasco Rossi, with La Benny Cuisine from all of us here It's Hariv Adirci
2: You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Check out all of The Athletic's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app.
3: The Athletic.